Well, I'm pleased to announce that on this day in 1989, one of the great albums ever uh, was released. It is, of course, De La Soul, the debut album of Three Feet High and Rising. The sample-heavy, paisley-powered LP became a hip-hop landmark, establishing a mellower, newer style of hip-hop, a marked change against the harder edge of the more aggressive hip-hop styles around at the time. None of the many samples on the album were cleared, as the practice was still new, but it has been described as a hip-hop masterpiece. So what are you hearing? You're hearing uh, Funkadelic's Not Just Knee Deep. I think there's a bit of a rapper dapper snapper by Edward Birdsong in there. Funky Worm by the Higher Players. I don't know, Catherine, if you're familiar uh, with this album back in the day, but uh, nonetheless, it's a good groove, isn't it? Oh, it's been, oh, De La Soul are fantastic. I used to produce yeah. a, a show for MTV called Recognize, which was a... Oh. Um, oh. One of the um, only we only we only produced two shows out of New Zealand for uh, MTV, and um, it was it was featuring in the wonderful DLT and um, DJ oh, Sophia, and fantastic. we um, used to showcase all the local hip hop acts, which of course we were way before our time. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. But now it's very mainstream, right? Yeah. Very cool. I can see you, uh, um, Phil O'Reilly, in your uh, white Adidas one piece, top and bottom. With matching Absolutely. shoes, getting, I was, I was down to that. moving away there on my waterbed, Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> so you can exactly. you can hear the sloshing from here. It's Please fantastic. stop. Please stop. Uh, you're on the panel, <laughs> RNZ National. Uh, Catherine Graham, Phil O'Reilly, uh, and thank you for your company this afternoon uh, on the panel. It's been Islamic Awareness Week. In the lead-up to today, March 15, the third anniversary of the Christchurch terror shooting, it'll be followed by the Unity Week from today. The families and survivors asked that no large event be held this year, but instead have arranged events that hold positive messages for the future. Initiatives marking the week included speakers, children's events, peace walks, exhibitions. And on that, display, and on that a display this week, at Anur Majid was an Islamic calligraphy exhibition by Muhammad Wakas, who writes that Arabic is one of the ancient languages and has a deep significance for Muslims around the world. With that deep-rooted history comes a wealth of fascinating scripts and patterns formulated by early Sufis and calligraphers. And Muhammad is with us. Muhammad, uh, assalamualaikum. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me here. Lovely to have you on, Muhammad. Tell us a little bit about the calligraphy exhibition. What was the theme behind it? Well, uh, this exhibition was really important for us. Uh, we were really excited with this great opportunity, uh, which was actually offered to us by uh, Fiance and uh, 15 March Fano Trust. Uh, they approached us a couple of months ago and uh, they shared the idea of doing this Islam Awareness Week in the month of March, which really excited us. And, you know, we were always uh, interested in, you know, going to Christchurch uh, for uh, our Islamic art exhibition. And uh, we thought, like, this is a great opportunity. We should definitely go. And the, uh, the other important thing was the theme of this exhibition was Love, Peace and Unity, yeah. uh, which really resonates with us because um, you might have heard of our painting 51. We did. And that also had the same theme. So um, uh, we said, like, yeah, this is uh, a really good opportunity. We should definitely go there. And, uh, yeah. Very cool. So on that, tell us a little bit more about uh, this painting called Painting 51. The listeners might not be able to see it, of course, but uh, 
This is where it all started, I understand. Explain it to us. Yeah, so, uh, you know, back in uh, 2021, uh, we did this painting in back in 2021. Um, uh, during um, when it was second anniversary of crisis mosque attacks, uh, we, we were thinking like, how can we contribute and, uh, you know, um, make our bit and how we can, you know, remark that day and uh, mm. remember the martyrs. So we thought of uh, doing uh, an artwork which which can you know be a good memorable thing for uh, for the New Zealanders who can uh, you know remember uh, those 51 shohadas. Uh, so we did this painting back in 2021. Uh, we named this painting 51 uh, on the names of 51 uh, martyrs. Uh, so the idea behind this painting was to spread the message of love, peace, and unity. Uh, we wrote this love, peace, and unity uh, on the map of New Zealand across um, from Invercargill to uh, out uh, to Auckland. So this was written in ten different languages. Uh, right. These languages were inspired from the languages of those fifty-one martyrs. So that was the whole idea behind. And um, we also had a pattern in the background, which are actually the names of those fifty-one martyrs. Everything was written in Arabic. So. Yeah, and uh, this was unveiled in Wellington Museum uh, and also kept in uh, for display for for a month in the Beehive. We also oh, stayed in a couple of art galleries here in Wellington. Yeah, uh, uh, and um, uh, Mohammed, we have a panel with us. They might want to ask, is it a question or so as well? But uh, I want to ask you, how did the families of the victims respond to this painting, Painting 51? Yeah, so I was really looking forward for that because uh, I never had any interaction with those families in past. So this was a great opportunity for me to connect with them and see what their expressions are. Uh, and I was really excited to see, uh, most of them were really happy to see how I have commemorated their martyrs. And uh, they were some of them were really emotional to see this piece. Uh, they were quite pleased and they thought like uh, this is a way to connect with their you know loved ones whom they have lost. So there were mixed emotions. Uh, and, um, you know, um, they were taking pictures with their martyrs, uh, with, with the painting. And, you know, they were also trying to find the name of their martyrs in the painting, which was great. And, uh, you know, uh, I also got a comment from one of the families, uh, like this is a national treasure. And whenever you are willing to donate, donate it to the Christchurch. We would love to have this painting with us. So, painting painting and, 51, a national treasure. Yeah, what an honor to... Uh, yeah, <laughs> to, yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I was really That's excited all... to know about this. So I had some posters with me and they, they really wanted to have those posters and which I gave away to them and they wanted to, you know, send those posters abroad to their children, you know, uh, like how their loved ones have been, you know, uh, remembered through this uni unique and beautiful Very art. Cool. Mohammed, yeah. we've got a couple of panelists with us. Catherine, uh, jump in. You've got a question or a thought for Mohammed. Kauda and congratulations yeah. on uh, making something like a celebration out of such a um, you know a heinous act, and you've 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 changed the um, you've changed the narrative and made a, a celebration of these people's lives. So I think it's it's a wonderful it's wonderful to have something creative out of even though it was heinous, but it's wonderful mm. to have mm. this work. So Kauda, yeah, Phil. Yeah, well, Mohammed, it's fantastic. But I looked, uh, I had the privilege of looking at the painting uh, just before I came on air. It's a 
So really demonstrates a, the, 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 um, the, the work of art. I mean, it's just a cool work of art uh, mm-hmm. and such a great response to, to say, you know, what we'll do is we'll make something really positive. We'll make something really connecting out of this. I thought that was exactly, exactly the right thing to do and wonderful. Exactly. What's, your, what's your next plan? What, have you got another artwork in mind? Have you got another project in mind to continue down the same track for, for the future? Yeah, yeah. I'm working on, on a project. Uh, it's called uh, Five Pillars of Islam. This is a painting in progress. So this is something which I would like to unveil uh, in the month of Ramadan, uh, which is next month. So this is, again, uh, a message of love, peace and, you know, unity. So, uh, so you know, this, this has given me an opportunity to, uh, you know, tell uh, the world more about Islam, like what Islam is. How peaceful religion is this? Uh, and I really thank God, like, who has given us the opportunity to, you know, uh, to bring this beautiful uh, religion to, you know, to everyone, you know, which is a religion of peace. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward for that. And, uh, you know, this is a sacred art because uh, this is something which connects you with God. Uh, I would say, like, this is more spiritual and uh, more blissful. Good on you, Mohammed Kiora, right. and thank you very much for being uh, with us. And uh, I'll direct uh, our listeners to the site where Painting 51 is, and they can go and have a look at it themselves. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. There's Mohammed Wakas there, calligrapher, uh, and responded to the uh, uh, Christchurch terror attacks by, um, by well, a, callig- a calligraphy exhibition as part of Islamic Awareness Week, but also this quite unique painting. It's called Painting 51, and you can go and have a look at it uh, on his website. And the website is mwcalligraphyart.com. That is mwcalligraphyart.com. Uh, and if you've forgotten that, you can just email me at the panel at rnz.co.nz, and uh, we can send that to you. And you're going to have a look. A bit of feedback uh, for you, uh, Gordon. Uh, good old Gordon says, Waterbeds. The best separate adjustable temperature on each side of the bed. Turn it up a little for winter, a little down for summer. Great. Um, Michael says, Wallace, I'm not sure where people are getting the idea that hybrids are expensive. I bought a 2011 hybrid, an ex-Uber. Great condition, zero problems with it over a year later. I have been shocked at how much less fuel it uses. Around town, which is 90% of my driving, I get three times as far for the same amount. But Jamie in Ototahi Christchurch says, a couple of things to remember. Batteries do slowly lose their ability to hold a charge, approximately 6% a year. A replacement replacement for a leaf will sit you back around 6K. That's a lot of petrol. Balance that against an electric motor only having seven or so moving parts. Much less to go wrong is uh, Jamie's view. On the panel, uh, NZ National, with me this afternoon is Catherine Graham and Phil O'Reilly. Now, the government has asked the public for their opinion on the new proposal regarding uh, recycling. That was big news yesterday. But I wanted to hone in on one of the proposals, and that is to support businesses in disposing of their food scraps separately from their general waste. And I know that um, a couple of councils around the country do this, so to discuss this, we are joined by Wasteman's Chief Executive, Nick Quilty. Nick, kia ora, welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Wallace. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank so, you for inviting I, I, me. It's bl- uh, nice to have you on. So right now I'm down the bottom of the garden in uh, you know, Ireland in the Bay. I'm in a little cottage here, and right uh, to the side of the cottage is a compost bin. 
at home right now, I, for the last year, have been putting uh, the food scraps in a worm bin. Never used to. Dump it all in. Is this the sort of thing we're talking about, but on a much larger scale or a commercial scale? Look, I suppose it is. And I suppose um, you're wanting to know how New Zealand's doing with food scrap collection. Yes. So I'll be missing a trick there. Are we? So look, yeah, New Zealand's been reasonably slow to introduce nationwide food scraps collections compared to countries overseas. And that's because individual councils implement them and sometimes when their communities ask if they want a collection, they're not supportive of one. And this is because they believe they either produce no food waste, which is probably not true in most cases. And in fact, I think most businesses and most individuals don't realise how much uh, food uh, they waste. They have a home compost system, which is what you're talking about now, or they don't want their rates to be used to pay for it Uh. or for their rates to, to cover the costs. So some of these people may be opposed to these collections because they uh, may be opposed to new landfills being built and implementing an organic materials collection system is one of the best ways of reducing the need for new landfills. I have heard, um, in fact a a professor uh, came on uh, of sustainability and and also part of the uh, IPCC said that food emissions uh, weren't getting enough traction in New Zealand. We have huge food emissions and one thing you could do quite easily at home, a concrete thing you could do is actually this. Yeah, look, that's exactly right. So it's um, estimated approximately 40% of rubbish put out at curbside is food waste and a further 10% is green waste. And instead of these being landfill, these materials could be recycled into valuable products such as compost. So why aren't we doing it? Can use. Um, well, I think, I think the problem is, is that if you look at the councils, only 10 of them offer food Uh, scraps collections and most of them have only just begun to implement them so it's hard for us to measure their impact Um, but if you look at Timaru and Christchurch City Council they've been they've had these food and green waste collections for many years and if we look at a 2018 audit of Christchurch rubbish bins um, it was found that only 0.05 percent is food scraps so obviously food scraps collections work but but they re- they are quite difficult to implement, and one of okay. the main barriers is that we don't. It's the main barriers is not having regional infrastructure such as commercial composting facilities to process the food waste. Well, Catherine Graham, is this something? I mean, you're Auckland based. Is this something that you would be mm-hmm. supportive of as an idea? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, when I read the article that we you got, you know, that we had to read about this, I just thought, wow, is it taking this? this long you know I'm surprised that it has taken this this long I must admit to a guilty secret is that I'm a bit scared of compost and so I think there's work to be done I have a what's it called a waste master which my friends tell me is something that I just should not have it's really bad but um, I just think that if you can educate people that in terms of the well the businesses for sure and then I see that the next step is to have um, like ones out when you do your bins and everything, I think I just think it'd be great. I'd much rather that the food waste went to something positive like this. Okay, so Catherine uh, wants to sort of get rid of the, the potato peels down the waste master no longer the eggshells. Uh, what do you make of that, uh, Nick? <laughs> oh, look, um, I'd I'd prefer that that didn't happen either. Um, and if you mm-hmm. look at the yeah, look. 
It's a bit of a, and I think lots of apartments have these types of things, don't they? Because where, where, where do they put their, where do they put their food waste? You know what the key is though? What? It's only purchase what you are going to eat. And so much food is wasted because people don't do that. They go to the supermarket. The key is to go to the supermarket with a list, like a, a meal planner almost. This is what I'm going to have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc. And only buy what you're going to eat. All right. And because and, and this is why things go down the waste master and this is why things are composted because ultimately we, we really only want to we really only want to buy food that we're going to consume not you know composting is fine but ultimately it's like only buy what you need. Okay, uh, Phil. So the, these are these are good ideas of course in principle good for all sorts of reasons. The challenge, and one of the reasons to the very point that's being made that we've struggled to get this happening is because of local circumstances and particularities, you know, so how are you going to make it work in, in an apartment building? How are you going to make it work with particular lifestyles and so on? How are you going to make it work in rural New Zealand and so on? So the, 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 one of the worrying things about what government's doing here is not the idea. The idea is a good idea. It's that they're going to, the potential is that they force a one-size-fits-all solution on local councils. And that's, and then, of course, they won't pay the local councils to, to actually institute it, to put it in place. Uh, so if you're going to get local commitment to this kind of thing, and, and one thing I've learned about waste minimization schemes and uh, uh, zero waste sort of stuff is it's, it, it's at its best when it's a community thing, you know, when everybody around the community sort of supports it. So the challenge, I think, is not the idea. The challenge is to make sure that the idea is bought into by communities and uh the worrying thing is central government coming out with, you know, big discussion papers and stuff doesn't necessarily get you to that point. So right. I think more going back to councils to say, how do we do this thing? Okay, sounds like you're not sort of uh, too supportive of a standardised uh, food scrap scheme there, but uh, quite a bit of response on this. But for now, Nick Quilty from Wastemans Cura, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's uh, Wastemans Chief Executive. Uh, Chris says, Wallace, food that goes into landfill doesn't compost, it rots and releases methane in large quantities. Uh, greenhouse gas, many times worse than CO2. If you are part of a council that uh, does have one of these food scraps schemes, uh, do you buy into it? Does it work? Um, are you supportive of it? Uh, email me, the panel at rnz.co.nz. Catherine Graham and Phil O'Reilly with me this afternoon. Uh, and just finally, I needed to bring this up because uh, this is, this is a, quite extraordinary. Now, according to a recent Newsroom article, sales of New Zealand fiction are dismal compared to books by international authors, despite a string of acclaimed New Zealand written releases hitting the shelves over the past couple of years. The public at large has not shown much interest. I'm joined by the writer of that article and Alan and Unwin NZ publisher, Michelle Hurley. Michelle, welcome to the panel. Kia Wallace, how are you? Good, good to have you on. Uh, a statistic just just jumped out at me right in my face. Got it right here. I'm going to read it out. New Zealand fiction makes up just 5% of the total market. Australia, where Australian fiction makes up 30% of total sales. What is going on? Why aren't we reading New Zealand fiction? And why are the Australians reading Australian fiction? Nearly 30%. Yeah, I mean, just to clarify, those figures are about locally published books. So it's not... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Nonetheless. But, um, but, but, but you can see the, the big gap that, um, that occurs between how many Australian um, novels are being read by Australians versus New Zealand novels read by Kiwis. Um, 
Yeah, and it's not a new situation. It's right. It's been, it's been around for a long time. Um, but what's I said, I guess what interested me was that there's been a, a real increase in reading during yeah. COVID, um, and we are buying more books, but we're not. That hasn't budged that figure for local fiction. And yeah, we we covered that uh, last week on the panel actually. But I'm just reading here. Okay, so you have got former journalist Jane Harper. Uh, she sold four hundred thousand copies of her novel The Dry in Australia here. You're lucky to sell 2,000 copies. Yeah, and I mean, that's not all books. Some do sell more, but, but on average, um, your local fiction writer here is, is going to struggle to sell certainly more than about 5,000 copies. And, uh, and look, there's a difference, obviously, in the population. You've got to adjust for that. But even when you look at, you know, when you look at something like, um, you know, even it's kind of across the board, it's, it's not just commercial fiction, it's crime, yeah. it's, um, literary fiction, you know, and, you know, those genres actually do all meld, you know, not one is not necessarily, you know, not the sure. other. But um, yeah, I think, I think what's happened I mean, there's lots and lots of factors and nobody has the, you know, the, the answer, mm. otherwise we would have solved it. But I think there's been some real momentum in the last sort of decade in Australia. Okay. So they've had some real breakthrough successes. Uh. And, you know, the Leanne Moriarty's, uh, Jane Harper, um, and they have been turned into um, films or miniseries, um, which then begets more sales. Um, and then all of a sudden... You know, and they're sold internationally, which, you know, um, drives international sales. And that all of a sudden they become brands, you know, and they become, you know, worth investing in. Whereas we, we haven't had that happen so much here. Okay. Um, well, let's go around the panel on this. Catherine Graham, uh, when, what was, name a piece of New Zealand fiction that you read. <laughs> Okay, um, think about it. Phil O'Reilly. Um, <laughs> well, you, who, who didn't read it? Sort of that, that's uh, the Bone People, you know. Which, it was pretty dense, uh, wasn't it? It was pretty oh, pretty hard to read, but you felt like you had to do a bit of a. It was like a, a thing as a New Zealander you had to read that. Uh, but but it was I was surprised by that too because you know I buy an awful lot of books and the New Zealand non-fiction collection. I was just in a bookshop this, this afternoon, as a matter of fact. The non-fiction stuff, there's a lot of it, and some of it is just beautifully done. Beautifully you're a massive reader, done. though, aren't you, Phil? You're, you're almost, like, Huge, a yeah, yeah. So you're almost like a hobbyist reader. Um, yeah, I was surprised by this point about, about not enough uh, fiction, and I think uh, there's a really interesting point about the Australian Coast because, of course, you've got people like Bryce Courtney and these massive, famous global names, and yeah, of that's why a prize like this is a great idea because it might encourage that person who, who otherwise wouldn't have to go and do it, and maybe we've got a next big international famous uh, famous author, so it's a great idea. Uh, Catherine, uh, you got a, a thought or a comment for uh, for Michelle? Well, I'm more of a, to be honest, I'm, I, I'm an avid reader, absolutely avid yeah. reader, And but I read, for, with New Zealand, I read more non-fiction. So okay. I've read Vincent O'Malley's Land Wars, ah. and so I guess, you know, I just, that's probably the latest non-fiction that I've read, but the other thing too is promotion and marketing because when I'm buying books on my Kindle, it's very seldom I see a New Zealand uh, mm. published um, writer on oh. on the the recommendations that I get. In fact, I'd probably say I've never seen one. So that's obviously to do with my lowbrow um, books that I'm reading. But I also think that that's possibly a block, you know, for some people. Michelle. Yeah, it certainly can be because most of those um, ways that you access Kindles or Kobos are from international um, sites, you know, so Amazon or, um, you know, you're not, you're, not, you're not getting those recommendations from local 
local booksellers. Um, and I mean, I would say though it's only about 30% of all sales are ebook sales. So most people are still reading in print, especially fiction. Um, so, you know, look, I think there's lots and lots of um, aspects to it, and that's why we yeah. wanted to do the prize because we thought, A, it will get people talking about it, like, you know, and, and also I just. You know, I grew up in Australia, and I have seen the development of that industry. And oh, I see. That, have seen that they um, have managed to, you know, that they had exactly the same sort of perception issue, you know, sort of twenty years ago about Australian books, and and you know, um, it's really, really changed. So I feel like it can here. I feel like we're at a bit of a tipping point. And, we just and by the way, uh, I got to sneak this in, Michelle. Uh, it's a ten thousand dollar advance to a prospective yep. novelist. A bit of a commercial fiction. I might start thinking. I've got a book of myself, uh, a little cottage on the bottom of the garden. Banjo walks in. There's something around that. Hey, kia ora, Michelle. Thank you. Uh, and Catherine Graham, Phil O'Reilly, thank you very much for being with us on the panel. I'm Wallace Chapman. 3.45 tomorrow. See you then. Checkpoint with Lisa Owen next. <laughs>